Interpretation is one of those words we hear about all the time. Events, data, and pictures are interpreted. Similarly, there are a lot of vague definitions thrown around about interpretation, especially when it comes to history. Yet, what exactly is a historical interpretation, and how do we know what constitutes a good and a bad interpretation? In this episode, we're going to find out. So first of all, what is a historical interpretation? Richard Slater writes that historical interpretation is the synthesizing process of describing, analyzing, and evaluating past events. It is based on primary and secondary sources and can explore any variety of topics such as causality, processes, outcomes, conflicts, etc. Colonel Foray and Michael Salavoris posit that an interpretation, at its core, is a generalization that, quote, characterizes the entire experience according to its principal elements, end quote. In addition, supporting corroborating details can be given. The idea behind an interpretation is that it elevates a historical work beyond a mere recitation of facts, and readers expect detailed support for any generalization that a historian makes. One important thing to note is that an interpretation is different from an inference, which is a conclusion or deduction based on corroborating evidence. Inferences are just one tool used in the interpretation of evidence. They're speculative in nature and read between the lines to come up with possible answers to questions for which there may not be definitive evidence. Put another way, Norman Cantor and Richard Schneider compare historical inferences with scientific hypotheses. Essentially, inferences are statements based on logical conclusions which show the relationships between facts. They also write that no two historians will see the exact same inferences between facts, but a pattern of meaning will eventually emerge. Regarding their validity, inferences are only as true as the facts they're based on. By keeping the inferences grounded in the facts, the historian lends plausibility and credibility to their work even if others disagree with their logic. Without the support of facts, inferences are merely baseless opinions. In the end, an inference is always a personal judgment about the facts and the two should not be confused. Finally, Cantor and Schneider write that the historian works to establish inferential links between the facts. The greater number of inferential links that a historian can demonstrate between individual facts, the stronger the causality and the better the history will be. What this all tells us is that inferences are not merely guesses because they must be based on corroborating evidence to have some validity, similar to interpretations. One way to think about the difference is that an inference is just a theoretical statement derived from evidence that's part of the overall interpretation. Interpretations, on the other hand, constitute a larger body of work that includes a thesis to be examined and a logical breakdown of the related evidence. For example, five books on the same event written by five different authors can amount to five different interpretations, each with their own set of inferences based on the evidence presented. Moving on, let's examine some of the elements of the interpretation. Note that the following elements and categorizations of ter interpretations come from Du, Foray, and Salivoris, and could technically be classified as inferences, but to spare us from arguing over semantics, I'll simply keep the author's word choice. Richard Drew notes that interpretations have three essential elements. The first is purposeful and thoughtful efforts. An application of logic and organization to an explanation, they are not spur-of-the-moment opinions. The second is representations, an attempt at faithfully representing past events, which is grounded in historical evidence. And thirdly, a reflection on past events. An interpretation is a reflection of the researcher themselves, 
given their temporal distance from past events. By being temporally removed from the event, a researcher can offer a distinct reflection on the past. Essentially, an interpretation is an attempt at explaining and rationalizing a past event with supporting evidence. Drew's third point seems to account for the fact that we all interpret things differently based on our own experience and frames of reference. Thus, different historians can have wildly different interpretations of the same events. Whether or not you agree with those interpretations is another matter. Next up, let's look at some of the types of interpretation. As Furey and Salivoris noted, historical interpretations are generalizations supported by facts. However, they further break down generalizations into three types. Summary generalizations are statements of fact that are so basic and obvious that they require little proof or argumentation to support them. For example, the Democratic Party won the presidential election of 1992. The next is a limited interpretive generalization. This is a statement that is supported with evidence and argument and is concrete enough to be susceptible to a convincing proof. So, for example, the Democratic Party won the presidential election of 1992 because Ross Perot split the opposition votes to Bill Clinton. And the third type of interpretation is a broad interpretive generalization. This is an all-encompassing statement that is exceedingly difficult to validate with any amount of evidence or argument. Even with a massive amount of evidence, they remain purely speculative in nature. So for example, all history is the history of class conflict, according to Karl Marx. Ferret and Salivoris further specified that broad interpretive generalizations, while often thought-provoking, are best left to philosophers. Worthy historical interpretations are of the limited interpretive generalization variety. Such generalizations provide explanations for the causes of an event, i.e. the how and why it happened the way it did. When supported with solid evidence, they are compelling enough to advance our historical understanding, deepen our knowledge, and signal to the reader that the historian knows the subject. However, they also caution against the historian trying to examine every possible underlying or indirect cause. To do so makes the limited interpretive generalization unsupportable and actually lessens its impact. Based on these categorizations and incorporating Richard Drew's previous three elements of an interpretation, we can deduce the following. Summary generalizations capture Drew's second element of being a representation of past events, but they lack further application of thoughtful logic, that is, the first element, and they offer no explan further explanation and reflection on how and why past events occurred the way they did, that is, they lacked element three. Limited interpretive generalizations capture all three elements that Drew specifies, that is, they represent a representation of facts with evidence to support it, that is, element two, they apply logic and a purposeful explanation, element one, and they offer a distinct reflection of the past in conjunction with the explanation and the facts, that is, element three. The broad interpretive generalizations make some attempts at reflecting on the past, that is, they capture element three, but their representations of the past, element two, and the degree at which they apply logic, element one, are debatable and sometimes lacking. Moving on, I would further argue that there is another category. An unofficial category of my own is something that I like to call the pointless interpretive generalization, or the pointless interpretation. These are usually in the form of the following. They go insert subject or object, is insert adjective. The conversation might go something like this. Uh, blank is good, or blank is bad. And you might reply, well, why do you say that? And the person who made that statement will say something like, uh, because it just is. 
you know, it's bad because it's bad, or it's uh, good because it's good. Alternatively, they might say something like, uh, because I agree with it, or I disagree with it, wherein personal bias becomes the logic itself. I agree with it, therefore it's good, or I disagree with it, therefore it's bad. Essentially, these generalizations occur when people react to the news, and they provide a quick opinion or offer unsolicited advice on something. How many times have we seen that, right? They're essentially heavily biased knee-jerk reactions with little in-depth thought. Personally, I find them to be incredibly annoying since they do nothing to improve our understanding of the topic at hand. They provide no supporting evidence or reasoning beyond one or two adjectives, good or bad or happy or sad or something like that, and they are not convincing in the least. They also run afoul of assigning simplistic moral judgments on events without any serious consideration of the contexts. Now, I've tried to classify these simple statements according to Ferre and Salivoris' generalizations, but I would not classify them as summary generalizations because they're mostly statements of opinion and provide little, if any, factual evidence. The closest category they probably come to is the broad interpretive generalization. Such pointless interpretive generalizations lack elements 1 and 2 because they are certainly not thoughtful in their application of logic, nor are they substantive in their representation of the facts. The only element they might contain is the third because they invoke some degree of reflection on the topic. However, I stress that quote-unquote reflection is a very generous use of the term in this case. If anything, it is a poor reflection on the person giving the interpretation. Thus, it is probably a broad interpretive generalization, but I think that's stretching the term, shall we say, and instead I contend that it is on a level of interpretation that is even lower. I call it pointless. So this brings us to the process of interpretation. Interpretation is one of the more difficult aspects of historical research. It defines what makes your own research unique and what distinguishes it from being just another rehashing of historical events. That being said, it is also a process. For any historical event or topic under research, Ferre and Salivoris write that developing an interpretation requires a historian to examine the issues of causality in an event, consider the context and setting of the event, read up on other historians' work on the same event, and carefully study the evidence. The historian is attempting to answer the what, why, and how an event happened. More specifically, they note that interpretation is a process of research that is initially guided by a preliminary hypothesis. As the historian continues their research, they slowly begin to synthesize the information into a mental picture. Eventually, a final interpretation or thesis develops that is justified by the historical evidence. Finally, Ferre and Salivoris write that the interpretation that arises from the synthesis of research does not simply happen out of nowhere, but is the result of hard work. Historians examine events with expectations on how human motivations, politics, economics, and geography interact with each other. These expectations are not hard rules, but rather they may help explain the event under examination. While Ferre and Salivoris do not define any specific steps to take when generating an interpretation, they highlight the following elements of the process. A preliminary hypothesis, which provides a sense of direction to your initial research. Synthesis, or insight, which is a developed mental organization of the historical event that links the disparate elements into a cohesive whole. And a final interpretation, or thesis, which is a refined interpretation that comes about as your understanding of the material grows. The thesis must be supportable by the evidence you've discovered. The slow process of synthesis is one of the more frustrating elements of creating an interpretation. One analogy I used is to 
Imagine piecing together a very big and very convoluted jigsaw puzzle. The individual puzzle pieces represent the individual facts, and the final image that you create is the interpretation. Now the problem is that multiple different pieces can fit into the exact same spot, representing multiple causality, and many of the pieces, in fact, do not mesh well together. Hence, there are multiple solutions to this big puzzle, and if you do manage to put it all together, then the resulting picture, which is one of many valid solutions, is clear in some areas, but blurry and ill-defined in others. It is then up to the individual to make out specific parts and interpret what they are seeing. This represents the objective and subjective elements of interpretation, and explains why historians will broadly agree on certain facts, that is, the clear areas of the image, but disagree on others, or the blurry areas. Such is the process of forming a coherent interpretation from various historical sources, and it explains why we can have multiple valid interpretations based on the same set of facts. Moving on, let's think about some variation in interpretations. Thus far, we've examined the three elements that make up an interpretation, the three different types of interpretations, or generalizations, and have gotten a rough idea of the process required to form an interpretation. However, we still need to account for why there are often wide variations in historical interpretations. Frey and Salivores first emphasized that, quote, all historical generalizations are probabilistic rather than certain, end quote. If the interpretations have solid evidence behind them, then they are probably valid. Unlike the sciences, which deal in far more quantitative and mathematical data and formulae, historians rarely have such luxuries, aside from maybe historical statistics, but even those can be suspect. In any case, they can never be sure that the evidence is representative. Thus, historical interpretations have a temporary quality and cannot be considered absolute. In addition, Ferret and Salivoris address the fact that any historical event can be interpreted in any number of different ways. This is because all historians examine events from different viewpoints with different interests and at different distances from the topic. History students should expect differences in how separate historians interpret the same event. In many ways, these differences in interpretation are similar to different people witnessing, for example, a car accident as the police interview the drivers, the passengers, and bystanders who were either directly involved or witnessed this car accident, they'll get an assortment of different stories of the same event. Five different people will give five different stories of the same car accident based on their own perspectives. Each story will have some validity to it, but will be slightly different because of the differing perspectives, similar to the jigsaw puzzle analogy above. There is not necessarily one quote-unquote true interpretation, but the good ones are, of course, based on facts. Next up, how do we determine validity in interpretations? So, if historical interpretations are just probabilistic in their validity due to their tentativeness and are reflections of individual viewpoints, is there such a thing as an acceptable interpretation? Well, yes. Evaluating interpretations is not an easy task, but Ferrer and Salivoris write that historians ask two questions when trying to determine the validity of an interpretation. 1. Does the author adequately support the interpretation with evidence? The historian should have carefully examined the evidence and located the essential points to support their thesis. Extraneous information should be avoided. While we understand that no one can realistically cover everything, the historian should be applying the relevant material to their interpretation. Second. Does the author avoid being overwhelmed by personal intellectual preoccupations or theories? We all have biases that influence how we view evidence. It's very easy to allow personal attitudes and biases to distort the facts. However, we should do our best to distance ourselves from such attitudes. 
Examining events dispassionately is difficult, and there is no way to completely eliminate bias from a work. However, a historian who is honest with themselves goes a long way towards being more objective. I mean, at the very least, they could probably acknowledge their bias. By answering these two questions when evaluating interpretations, a reader can better assess if the historian has done their due diligence and presented a fair view of the material with logical interpretations. Notice that there is no mention of whether or not the reader agrees or disagrees with the interpretation since that arguably has no bearing on the validity of it. While we all interpret events differently depending on our personal perspective, recognizing when our personal biases are clouding our judgment is one of the biggest challenges in forming an interpretation. It's very easy to interpret events in ways that are not supported by the facts or the data, and instead influenced by our preconceived notions. In short, be careful of reading into the evidence what is not there. Challenging the validity of an interpretation is an element of historiography, that is, how history is written. It is important to avoid ad hominem attacks by personalizing interpretations. Just because you disagree with an interpretation should not be a reflection on the character of the writer. Appropriate disagreements with interpretations are counter-argued in other interpretations. Furthermore, different interpretations can approach the same topic from different perspectives. For example, I've read many interpretations of the Pacific War of World War II from any number of different perspectives. Some focus purely on military operations, some on biographical elements, and others focus on the political or economic aspects. All of these were valid interpretations, and some I found to be of more value than others. Just because an interpretation does not analyze a subject from a certain viewpoint is not grounds for dismissal. Entire books are published on asserting different interpretations of the same events and affirming others. As previously mentioned, such challenges to interpretations are to be expected. One of the difficulties in developing a well-rounded understanding of a historical event is taking the time to read multiple different interpretations, examining the similarities and differences, and synthesizing all of the information into your own understanding. It can be uh, quite a task, to say the least. As a final topic here, I want to take some time to examine some of the challenges that I've seen in secondary education. As a history teacher myself, one of the more annoying things that I have to deal with are the occasional emails or calls that I get from concerned parents about their, um, shall we say, disappointment or disagreement with the current social studies curriculum or the standards or whatever. Regardless of wherever the curriculum or the standards came from, I do not always build these curricula or choose the standards, mind you, these people have a problem with what their child is learning in history class, and they view the teaching of said curriculum or standards as the imposition of a particular social or political agenda. In some ways, it's understandable, but naturally, they want their child to learn the, uh, the quote-unquote true history of something, right? The true history of World War II or the true history of slavery or something like that. You know, just like they were taught growing up. Yes, I have heard some people use the term true history, as if there's only one accurate interpretation of history. This, of course, ignores the reality of historical interpretations and assumes there is a one-size-fits-all method of learning history, right? Now, I often have to remind people that the field of education is constantly changing. It is almost always in flux. Just because you learned it one way does not mean that way works for everyone, nor does it mean it is the superior way. I do encounter a fair number of, shall we say, older people or people of older generations who literally expect history class to be nothing but 
a boring series of lecture where the teacher just prattles on about dates and people and events and places because that's how they learned history. Yet funny thing is, when you ask them about it, they can't remember half of it, you know? It's like, well, no wonder you never learned anything about it. You don't remember anything because, you know, yeah. I mean, newsflash, this is the 21st century, and this ain't your grandpa's history class. We're not sitting around memorizing the textbook, you know, memorizing a bunch of dates and people and events and places, you know? History is not a game of Jeopardy, you know, with singular answers to questions. You know, oh, beep, what is 1492, you know? It's like, who is Christopher Columbus? It doesn't work that way, really. So, furthermore, a lot of the statements I hear seem to operate on this assumption that your average social studies class, at least in, like, you know, middle school or high school or whatever, is doing these really deep dives into history. You know, oh, I'm just throwing, like, you know, 500 page history books at him and that's all we're doing all class every day you know <laughs> no the reality is that there is often so much content to cover and so many different standards to address that it is nearly impossible to do anything other than just skim the surface of the material within the time frame of a class period or a quarter or a single semester or even a single school year i mean it's pretty tough to go deep into the uh, the true history when you're covering from World War I to the end of the Cold War in about three months. I mean, I just had three months to cover the entire European Renaissance, so <laughs> give me a break. Now, you might remember that scene from the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where the uh, teacher is giving a lecture on, like, the Great Depression. You know, anyone? 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 Something D-O-O -O economics. Voodoo economics. Now this, the Laffer Curve, says that at this point, the, you know, and he's just scrawling on the chalkboard. Yeah, that's Ben Stein. Now, Ben Stein himself was a teacher, but in the scene, in the film, he's giving a real economics lecture. Yes, that is a genuine economics lecture he's given. And he's just, you know, droning on and on and on and on. But also notice in that scene that nobody's really learning anything. They all got these blank stares on their faces. Yeah. You know, that's the old school way of teaching history, where the teacher just stands in front of the class, writes on the, the chalkboard or the whiteboard or whatever, and just drones on and on and on. That's, that's lecture, okay? Also known as direct instruction. Now, I do know many high school teachers who still give lectures, who still do direct instruction, but here's the catch. They're really, really good at it because they've been doing it for a long time, and Many of them incorporate lots of other activities in it to keep the student engaged. Current educational training, for teachers anyway, stresses actually moving away from direct instruction and instead making learning more student-centered, shall we say. Although it is acknowledged that some direct instruction may still be necessary. Why? Because, well, students these days have the attention span of, like, 35 seven, five seconds, you know, because they spend all their time on social media and TikTok and whatnot. And so, yeah, it's generally said that we, you want to chunk your instructions and your directions and your lecture or whatever to generally around 10 minutes. After about 10 to 15 minutes, you're going to lose the attention of most people, in many cases, even adults. So yeah, if you just stand up there for like, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 minutes or an hour, just droning on and on and on, you are rapidly going to lose your audience. And so, yeah, imagine if you're trying to teach 13 or 14 year, year old kids or, you know, high schoolers or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> they're not going to, to uh, retain much information if that's all you're doing. 
Anyway, I try to emphasize to my students the following ideas concerning the learning of history and interpretations, again, at the secondary level. The first is that history is full of unpleasant ideas, people, and events, and so on. There are no good old days in history, the more you look at it. Another thing is that there are many different interpretations of these same events. Thirdly, I am not asking them to agree or disagree with either the events, the ideas, or the people, or even the interpretation. I'm teaching history, not a class on morals and ethics. We are not assigning moral judgment or creating a hierarchy of values in history. And finally, I want them to understand that these historical events occurred and give them the skills to at least start making their own assessment of it and to, at the very least, think critically, right? Now, do not confuse understanding with belief, right? I'm not asking students to believe in something with, like, religious fervor or whatever. Rather, I'm asking them to acknowledge the occurrence of these events and to study the causes and effects. So, yes, you know, we'll learn about the Holocaust of the Jews in World War II. Pretty awful things. But, you know, I'm not asking them to, like, believe one interpretation over the other necessarily, okay? Now, I guess I should further qualify that I do not mean to imply that I'm expecting complete amorality. The classic example, again, that we can all agree on is that Hitler is pretty much the definition of evil and that the Holocaust happened. And yes, it was absolutely horrific. One can only wish that it did not happen. Now, while Hitler is in no way deserving of our sympathy, we should not dehumanize Hitler and perceive him as some kind of comic book supervillain. Now, of course, the danger with that scenario is that uh, I could one day have a student who is a Holocaust denier or a white supremacist or whatever. However, I think the problems with that kind of student, with those types of students, run far deeper than any school curriculum or historical interpretation. And it probably points more towards the student's background and home life or troubles they have with those things. So, <laughs> and that's kind of beyond my pay grade. Now, no doubt, I have seen some really, really strange history papers. For example, I had one student submit a paper with a thesis on how World War II was the result of this Earth, Gaia, spirit, harmony, whatever, being out of balance, which therefore gave rise to Hitler and the Nazis. You know, it reminds me of that, that, that famous History Channel meme, that what's-his-guy, um, yeah, the whole, like, it was aliens guy, you know, ancient aliens guy, yeah, with the funny hair. Like, no, I'm not joking. That really was their thesis. Like, Hitler was caused by the weird Earth spirit being out of whack or something. That was their thesis. Now, ultimately, I gave their paper a poor grade, not because I disagreed with their interpretation, but rather because it was just a really bad paper. It was poorly structured and poorly written. The grammar was awful. The spelling was abysmal. The organization was lacking, shall we say, and there was a clear bias towards the metaphysical, and there was no verifiable evidence or sources cited to support the thesis. They didn't even have a bibliography. Had the student instead taken the time to correct those things or write a decent paper with those things in the first place, then I probably would have graded it higher, even if the topic was a bit strange, shall we say. That being said, I've also read student-submitted papers on horrific topics like genocides, war crimes, lynchings, serial killers, what have you. But, you know, they ended up getting good grades because they were decent pieces of writing. They were decent pieces of historical writing. I did not dismiss them simply because I found the topics objectionable, all right? Or like, oh, that's not what I learned in school. No. 
The bottom line is that any assertion a student makes about a historical figure or event must be supportable with evidence and not display any blatant or overt bias, which includes, of course, like the harassment or denigration of others. Again, we strive for objectivity. At the end of the day, developing an interpretation is one of the more difficult tasks that a historian undertakes. Interpretations are a process and the result of hard work, careful thinking, and meticulous planning. Insight is gained, often slowly, but with practice. Worthy interpretations are based on verifiable evidence and attempts at reflecting on the past. We should be wary of simplistic evaluations of the events and of letting our personal views overtly color our understanding of the material. It is very easy to let personal conceptions override our judgment, and subsequently we read false interpretations into the material and create conclusions that are not supported by the evidence. There are various types of interpretations and they can approach the topic from virtually any aspect. Differences in interpretation are to be expected and there are no absolutes. However, the validity of an interpretation is based on the author's careful utilization of the evidence and the mitigation of biases. So that is a little bit on how we view interpretations, what they are, and you know, how we can do our best to create good ones. Thank you.